0: Please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 24. We're in the second half of our journey through the gospel accounts, and we're doing this in preparation of getting into the book of Acts. And the hope for our time in the gospels like this is to discover how these early believers were able to keep pressing forward with the gospel in the face of of persecution. Matthew emphasized that when Christians go out with the gospel... They can do so with confidence because Jesus says that they go under His authority and with His power. Last week, Mark made it crystal clear that the gospel, uh, in his gospel narrative that Jesus is alive. And they were, that was shocking. This news was so shocking, in fact, that it changed Jesus' followers' lives completely. The trajectory of their lives was changed because of the shocking nature of Jesus being risen from the dead. And it left us with this question, how will you respond to the risen Savior? The book of Acts kind of covers how the early disciples responded to that, which we'll get into in just a couple of weeks. For today, though, let's see what Luke has to say regarding the events after Jesus' death. And burial. So read with me, chapter 24 of Luke. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened, and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day? And on the third day, and they remembered his words, and returning to the tomb, they told all of these, returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping in, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us along the road, while he opened the scripture, opened to us the scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Would you pray with me together? Lord, as you did for your disciples, we pray the same for us, that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures this morning. Not just to understand it in our minds, though that's where general understanding needs to happen, Lord, but understanding in our hearts as well, that they might be connected in Jesus. That we might see and believe the truth of who Jesus is what he's come to do, we thank you for this account, and we pray as we think a little deeper and talk a little more that our minds would be opened to your understanding. In your name, we pray. Amen. Now, if you've been with us or if you've read the the other gospel accounts, you'll notice that Luke includes quite a bit here that Matthew and Mark didn't really touch on. Really, only John talks about some of these things more than than um, Luke does. And I just want to say again, I mentioned this at the very beginning, that this doesn't show inconsistencies in the gospel account. It shows that they were written from dis- different perspectives and for different purposes. Luke, who consequently is the author of Acts, um, he he is a a careful and intelligent physician, and he's a historian. And so he's really into the details of things. And so that's what we see in this last chapter of his gospel. He takes care to include a lot of details because they're important to him. And so he includes a lot between Jesus' uh, death and burial and his ascension. And that's what we kind of find here. But he, sh- he shares a lot of the same information. So we see the same thing. The women are going to the tomb. I, I think it's interesting that... The rest of his disciples are fearful and these ladies, God bless them, are some of the fearless ones and they're going, they're not even sure what they're doing because they don't know how the stone's going to be rolled away, but they're going out of their love for Jesus. And so they go, all the gospels record this. They go to the tomb expecting to find the big stone there and what do they see? Angels, glorious linen, bright, shining clothes. um, And they're told something a little different than what Matthew and Mark says. Luke records it this way. He says, why do you seek the living among the dead? This is what the angels say to the ladies. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And then they call their minds back to something. They say, remember how he told you he was going to do these things? Remember. Now I don't think I don't think this conversation happened uh, to shame these ladies for their unbelief. They were some of the bravest of Jesus' followers at the time. Um, But I think that they were specifically reminded to remember Jesus' words and now how they were seeing them being fulfilled in their lifetime in this day. And they just couldn't believe it. Uh, they they take this message back. You can see in verse eight, it says they did remember, and then they go and they take this message back to the, the other eleven disciples. And guess what? They don't believe it either. They just they just can't believe. And all all the gospel authors record this kind of thing that they they, they struggled to have faith. They struggled to believe that it could be true. This was shocking. Luke really, or I'm sorry, yeah, uh, Mark really emphasized this. This was shocking that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Maybe it was too good to be true. So Peter, you know, the, the, the bold guy, he goes and he runs to the tomb just to see if it's true. He finds everything as they said. It says, verse 12, that he marveled. He he still wasn't totally convinced. He wasn't sure what what he was seeing was true. Charles Spurgeon says this about it. He says, Christ had risen, but his people had not risen to full belief in him. They were still in the grave of distress and doubt, though their master had left the grave of death. Luke uh, then includes the detailed Emmaus Road account, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time together this morning. A couple of Jesus' disciples were going from Jerusalem to back to Emmaus, about seven-mile trip probably after the Passover celebration. Notice, these are two just like not well-known apostles, disciples. This is really the only time one of them is named. The other one never gets named. Cleopas and, and the other one. They were just normal followers of Jesus. I think there's some encouragement here for us. One commentator I read pointed this out, that there's really a lot of kindness in Jesus revealing himself to just normal, common followers of him. Uh, And the commentator I read pointed out as Jesus is the Savior for the common man. That's that's really true, isn't it? This wasn't Peter and John that Jesus was revealing himself to. He does eventually, but here we've got two just kind of normal dudes walking along the road. And this encounter with Jesus as they're walking reveals that Jesus' followers still had not really understood what he was saying about his death and resurrection. He talked about it for like three years, but he still didn't really fully understand. Look at verse 21. These, These two disciples, they unknowingly explained to Jesus that he wasn't who they hoped he would be. I can't imagine they would say that to him if they knew who it was. But they, they more or less say, he, he, he kind of disappointed us. Verse 21 says, they hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. I heard this story of this family who was planning a trip to the Grand Canyon. Okay, How many of you guys have been to the Grand Canyon before? It's a sight to behold. And they were explaining to their young son, five years old or so, uh, the largeness of what they were going to see and the how it didn't compare to hardly anything else. And so they finally go and they take this trip and they get to the Grand Canyon and they're looking over the edge and the parents are looking at this little boy and he looks disappointed. And they, they ask him, they say, son, what's the matter? We thought you would really enjoy the Grand Canyon where we're at. Turns out he was disappointed because he thought they said the Grand Canyon and he was expecting a large firing thing, and he was thinking he was going to get to shoot a grand cannon. And this goes to show that when you're hoping for the grand cannon, you can be let down by something even as great as the grand canyon. If your expectations are wrong, you might even be disappointed about God. These two disciples expressed to Jesus how disappointed they were. They, We thought he would be the one to redeem Israel, they said. They were in shock. They didn't understand why God had let them down. Verse 16 seems kind of weird to us. It says that they didn't recognize Jesus. I don't think it's all that absurd, though. If you think of, we'll talk about this a little bit next week, in John chapter 20, Mary sees Jesus after his resurrection she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener, right? And she's like, where did you move the body? Well, that was him. Next chapter in John 21, the disciples are fishing in the boat, and they see Jesus standing on the shore. They don't recognize him either. So it's not totally absurd that they didn't know who this was. But I look at verse 19, and I, I hope you can maybe see some humor here like I do. Jesus, they say, well, how are you the only guy who's not heard of what happened? They're just in awe at the fact that he didn't know all the things that had happened. And then Jesus, I think, humorously says, what things are we talking about? The guy who's at the center of all the things asks them this question. What are you talking about? What things do you mean? And I just kind of wonder, why would he do that? Why would the guy who's at the center of it all ask them, what are you talking about? And I think it kind of has to do with maybe the idea of being a teacher. You you teachers out there, you ought to know more than your students, right? So when you ask them, do you know this question? It's not because you don't know the answer. It's because you want to see how much they understand of what's going on. I think that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He surely is a pretty good teacher And he does this for his students here along the road. Verse 21, they explain again, they had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. And these two disciples, were it not for the the love of God and the grace of God, they almost missed the significance of the greatest event in all of history. The earth quaked at at this event. And they almost missed it because they were disappointed in Jesus. They didn't recognize the Savior walking beside them. J.C. Ryle says, Let's learn a lesson from the two travelers to Emmaus. If we believe we're journeying to a heaven where Christ will be the central object of every mind, let's begin to learn the manners of heaven while we're yet upon the earth. And what he's saying is, If our goal and end is glory with Jesus, where he's the center of everything, maybe we ought to have him the center of everything now in this life as well. Well, to compound the problem here for these unbelieving disciples, they were walking in the wrong direction, weren't they? They were walking away from Jerusalem, seven miles back to Emmaus, away from the fellowship of believers, away from all of the things that Jesus had done, Verse twenty six comes into view. Jesus, they don't, they still don't know it's him, but he says, "Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory?" Uh, I, I've heard it said that the cross before the crown is God's pattern, and we see that for Jesus for sure. But I think in the book of Acts we're going to see how that's true of his. Followers as well, the cross before the crown, um, heard a story of Abraham Lincoln was speaking to his hometown in Illinois later on in his life. And he said, when I left Springfield, I asked people to pray for me, but I wasn't a Christian then he said, he said, when I buried my son, the, the most severest trial of my life, I wasn't a Christian. He said, but when I saw the graves of thousands of our soldiers, I then and there consecrated myself to Christ. He said, I do love Jesus. Those were his words. And And it kind of proves this idea that life's most painful tragedies can actually bring us to a deeper understanding of our Savior. Verse 27, Jesus says, or it says that Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, they still weren't able to recognize him. But uh, he was explaining these things to them and they thought he was going to go on. They convinced him to stay with them for the night. And as they ate together at the table that night, that's where the light bulb turned on. What what happened at the table? Well, you, you can look in verse 30. It says that Jesus with the two disciples, he took the bread, blessed it broke it, gave it to them. Now, we don't know if they were, these two guys were a part of that inner circle who were with Jesus before his death when he did this, but when he did it here, that's what kicked the light on. They realized who this was, breaking the bread and sharing it with his followers. These guys were walking to Emmaus. They were They couldn't understand, they couldn't wrap their head around the senseless death of the one they hoped would be the Redeemer of Israel. The one that they believed would be the Messiah. And a stranger comes, who they don't recognize, points them to truth from Scripture about the suffering Christ, and his ministry to them brought them comfort. Heartache has a way of pointing us to the Lord, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus, who has shared in our sufferings and can bring meaning to meaningly senseless pain. Look at verse 32. After this happens, the light, bulbs, the light bulb turns on, Jesus vanishes from their sight. They turn to one another and they say, Wow, didn't our hearts burn within us as we were walking and talking with him along the way? When he opened to us the scripture? And if Jesus is the ultimate teacher... And we would say that he is, then we should notice how and what he taught when he taught these two, because he opened the scripture to them. He used the best resource available. And if you think back, he does this through his whole ministry. He does this even before his ministry. As Satan is tempting him in the wilderness, what does he do? He uses the word of God to diffuse the temptation. Jesus does this often as as students. We learn from this that we should not forsake his teaching and that we should not be convinced of any other writing being more valuable to us than the word of God. Surely we can use tools and other people's writings to encourage, but they are not a replacement for the inspired word of God. And even though Jesus certainly could have revealed some fresh new truth to the disciples, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I give you a new word to encourage you here. What does he do? He takes them back. He takes them to the ancient texts, and he explains how they are applying now. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has a morning and evening devotion. It's excellent if you're looking for something to read. But about this, he says that the readiest way to be spiritually rich in heavenly knowledge is to dig in this mine of diamonds to gather pearls from this heavenly sea, talking about scripture. When Jesus himself sought to enrich others, he toiled in the quarry of holy scripture. The master of the house unlocked his, his own doors, conducted the guests to his table, and placed his own delicacies upon it. He who hid the treasure in the field himself guided the searchers to it. Hear that again. He who hid the treasure in the field himself guided the searchers to it. And so the Holy Spirit does the same thing for every person, even today, that genuinely seeks truth. For them, the way is not hidden. The way is revealed, he says. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the text says that their hearts burned within them. I like the way that this is phrased. Uh, I heard... I heard it said this week as I was reading that this is, this is holy heartburn. Now, if you struggle from, from physical heartburn, I'm sorry to make a joke about that, but uh, he's, it said that this was, this is holy heartburn. I think we kind of get that to, to some, some degree. We felt this kind of holy heartburn before. It's this, it's this radiant joy of being close to the Savior. It's the blazing testimony of Christ's work in our lives, and in our hearts. Um, this idea of, of being on fire for the Lord, the famous missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, said, I would rather burn out than rust out. So, back to the story, even though it was late in the day, the disciples had just understood that they were with Jesus, being taught by him, he was revealed to them, and they just flipped themselves right around, and they go right back where they came from. Right, It it sounds a little bit to me similar to the story of the prodigal son. Wandering away from where God would call them. And when the truth is revealed, they turn back to where they ought to be. And these guys do that. Even though it's late in the night, they turn around. You might even say they repented and they turned around. They changed their mind about this. And as they were explaining what happened to the other 11 disciples when they got back to Jerusalem, guess who shows up? Jesus does in the flesh. And that's, I think where that saying comes from in the flesh, Jesus shows up, but they still don't realize that it's Jesus. What do they think it is? It's a ghost. They think it's a ghost. They're, they're scared and they still don't believe even though he's been explained to them. He's right there. Jesus, of course, could understand their thoughts Yet And yet he asked them to admit what he already knew, that they were troubled and that they doubted. And I think, I really think Christians ought to take some comfort here, okay? Christians ought to be comforted by what Jesus does here because he doesn't ask his disciples at this point to just blindly trust him, though there would be opportunity for them to do that when necessary soon. But he doesn't ask them to just blindly trust him. He also doesn't ask them To push down their doubts and fears and just ignore them and act like they're not afraid or doubting at all. What does he do? I think this is significant. He deals with their fear. The first thing he says to them, he says, peace to you. He says, peace. Secondly, he deals with their doubt by inviting them to see his wounds and touch his hands and his feet I think in verse 41, this is kind of where that saying, too good to be true, comes from. And they couldn't, even in their great joy, couldn't overwhelm their doubt in just one fell swoop all at once. And to them, it seemed too good to be true. So Jesus raises the bar here. He says, hey, do you have anything to eat? And what's why is this included in Scripture? Why would it matter that Jesus eats a bite of fish? Okay, because he clearly goes out of his way to prove that he was there in the flesh. This is significant because in that time, and there would be later, even beyond his uh, resurrection ascension, there'd be groups of people that were teaching that spiritual is all that mattered and physical didn't matter at all. The Gnostics were a group that said this sort of thing. And so it didn't matter how they would sin with their bodies as long as their spirit was right. And so they were teaching these uh, heresies concerning Christianity and what Jesus was teaching and saying that Jesus only rose in spirit only, but that he did not rise physically. They would say this because they felt like all physical matter was inherently evil And so it didn't matter what happened to the body or what they did with it, spirit only, okay? And so they said that Jesus only appeared to have a human body. Well, obviously Jesus, as God, knew these kind of heresies would be coming. And so he went out of his way to prove he had a bodily resurrection. I find a bit of humor in this that the great fisher of men was given a piece of fish to eat in front of these guys who some of them were fishermen. Oh, the irony in this is fun. Uh, Jesus really had been resurrected in flesh and bone. He was no ghost. He was there for real. And so the disciples could really, really trust him. A physical resurrection is important for two reasons. More than these two, but just cover these two quickly. Physical resurrection is important because it proves that Jesus had complete victory over sin. Think about this with me. Sin, the Bible teaches that sin brings spiritual death as well as physical death. Adam sinned, and because we are all descendants of Adam, we all sin and therefore have death as our end. Paul really goes to great length in the book of Romans to make this clear. So if Jesus had only conquered spiritual death, He did not fully conquer sin because sin has other ramifications of physical death as well. If he had not risen bodily, Paul says, those who are his would not rise either. This is in First Corinthians. It's very clear on this. So physical resurrection is important because it proves Jesus has complete victory over sin. But it's also important because it proves that God is satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. What Jesus did, Sufficient sufficient. God raising Jesus from the dead demonstrates his approval of Christ's atoning work on the cross. And this, if the story of Jesus ended at the cross, you can imagine how the hopes of the disciples would have been completely shattered. They already struggled to believe, but they would have been completely shattered if he had not risen from the dead. So they needed to know not only that he died but also that he rose. It's the same thing people today need to hear and understand for salvation, that not only did Christ come and die for sin, but He rose to prove He has power over it, over it. Luke 24, verse 44 to 49, Jesus is clear in that He defines Himself in the terms of the Old Testament. So again, He's coming and He's explaining old things to them. He's not bringing new revelation. He is the fulfillment of everything that has been contained in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, he says. And then it says that he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures and these things. And he explains the message that they would then need to go and take to the world. And this message is very simple. If you look at the text with me, verse 46. This is what Jesus says the message is that they will need to take. He's Part of this message is that Jesus suffered died, and then rose again on the third day. Just as simply, verse 47 says that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, starting with the one closest to them, Jerusalem. That's, that's the gospel. Jesus suffered, died, and was ro- raised again on the third day, and that people find forgiveness, forgiveness of sin by believing in him. That's the essence of it, and this is what Jesus says. He says, look, verse 48, you guys are witnesses of these things. Not only in my teaching of them, but how, how I've demonstrated the forgiveness of sin. They saw him uh, raise the lame man up. But the, the biggest part of that story wasn't just that this guy who hadn't walked got up and, and ran and leapt. But it was that God, that Jesus could forgive his sin, because those onlookers who were debating it, he said, what's what's harder? To to make him walk or to forgive his sins? So that was really the story of that situation. And Jesus does this. Verse 48, he says, you're witnesses of these things. And he says, basically, sit tight here, verse 49, until the power of God comes upon you. And we know in the book of Acts, we see that happen in chapter 2, where the Spirit comes down and imbues them with power and abilities verse 50 51 of chapter 24 of Luke says that Jesus prays over them and then is carried up into heaven and we don't want to speak lightly of Jesus praying over his people uh, we see something similar in John 17 while Jesus is still alive he's praying for his people here it says he's praying for them he's blessing them Praise. And so how do they respond? Look at the end, verse 52 and 53. The people respond with great joy, continually worshiping Jesus and praising God. Specifically here, it lists in the temple. The, The disciples responded appropriately, wouldn't you say? To all of these things, they respond with worship. They respond with praising God. Now, I just want to remind us that our, our, our Intent in going through the last chapter of the Gospels before the Book of Acts is not to to deep dive in the specifics or um, the text in particular of each verse, but to really understand what was it that changed the disciples. Right, that's kind of the question at the back of our minds. And with that in mind, look back at verse forty-eight. Jesus says, "You're witnesses of these things. What things?" The miracles Jesus performed, they witnessed it. The sin Jesus forgave. They witnessed the death Jesus died. They were witnesses of the fulfillment of Scripture that he explained how he fit into. and They were witnesses to the truth that he really had risen from the dead. John MacArthur points out here, he says, If they had not seen Jesus alive from the dead, they would not have carried the message any further. They would never have proclaimed the message of a dead, disappointing teacher. No one would have believed the Lord Jesus was the Redeemer, Savior, Son of God, and Lord if he hadn't visibly and physically risen from the dead. And so the physical resurrection of Jesus is what fueled the disciples' passion and perseverance. Jesus being there, eating the fish, them seeing and touching fueled the disciples for what God through Jesus, was sending them out to do. Notice, too, though, that their message wasn't one of anything other than the truth about Jesus from the source of truth, the Scriptures. They weren't called to give some new revelation, new divine speaking or explanation. Jesus himself explains, I'm the fulfillment of Scripture, Law, Prophet, Psalms, This is the message that you are witness to, now go and share it. This is what he says. And it says in verse 45 that when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, it seems like that might have been the first time that these disciples really kind of made the connection and meaning between Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies about him. He'd shared them plenty of times, but now that light was on and they were getting it. And then notice what happened. They immediately go and use this kind of method in their own preaching and evangelism. Think think to the book of Acts. We'll get there in just a few weeks, but think to it. Stephen, where does he start? Does he start with Christ? No. He starts all the way back in the Old Testament He talks about Moses and Abraham, and he works his way forward. We see this in Philip's preaching. We see this with Peter as he preaches. We see this with Paul, for sure, and other scriptures, where they go and they start not with Christ, but with the Old Testament, and then they work forward and show how Jesus is through it all. This is what Jesus did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is what he did to his people in the upper room here. This is still for us today. I want us to notice that Jesus is telling His followers what to preach, where to preach it, and how to preach it. What to preach, where to preach it, and how to preach it. Christians preach the gospel under Jesus' orders. We're not free, brothers and sisters, to go make up any message we want. It's Jesus' orders. It's Jesus' story. And it's preached with his authority. And these disciples and even us today preach it knowing that repentance and forgiveness of sin come by virtue of Jesus' name, not ours, not theirs, but because of Jesus' authority. Uh, I, I heard another story about a young boy who was being watched by his mom and his grandma. And he, he asked them to come and play in the sandbox with them. Does anybody have a sandbox anymore? My grandparents, you guys have one? God bless you for your grandkids. <laughs> Kids love playing in the sand, right? So he, he gives his grandma and his mom shovels and you know, they're playing and they're sitting down in the sand and they're playing with him and they're, t- they begin to talk and time kind of goes by and then they see people, you know, in the neighborhood walking by and they, they're kind of starting to look at them funny. And so they turn and they realize that the sun is no longer in the sandbox with them. He's swinging on the swing, so they're playing in the sandbox by themselves, which, I mean, that's still fun as an adult, I'm sure. But as time goes on, and you can see in that story, as time went on, they kind of lost a sense of what they were doing. They were entertaining their child and grandchild, were supposed to be. And I think as as Christians, as time marches on, it can be easy for us to lose our focus on what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I don't want that to be the case for us. If you get, If you forget what your purpose is, you can kind of look silly, right? As Christians and as the church, we don't want to forget what our mission is. We don't want to get involved in activities and programs that don't serve the core mission of what Jesus calls his people to do and to be. And Jesus may have spoken these words on, on this resurrection day, on this Sunday, to his immediately, immediate disciples, but his words aren't just for them. Every member of the church down through the ages is to be involved in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then we're called to share it with others. And so this the last blank on your paper leads us to this truth that Christians have to make Christ's purpose, their purpose, brothers and sisters, Christ's purpose has to be our purpose. If it's not, we've forgotten what we're doing and we look silly. It was Jesus teaching and purpose that transformed these men from being confused and discouraged and fearful into bold, courageous witnesses who were willing to die for that faith and mission. So, Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, have you maybe forgotten what you're doing? Or maybe why you're doing it? started well, but maybe now you're in a sandbox looking silly. Uh, maybe you've become more wrapped up in yourself, and in what you're doing, than in what Christ has called us to do and to be in proclaiming the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus, I would encourage and challenge you today, refocus on what Jesus calls His disciples to. To go and to preach this message, because why? You are a witness of it. Even today. You're a witness of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done. And you can be confident in preaching this message because it's not your message. It's his. Now, we add to that with our testimony of what he's done in us. But the core of the gospel is not a message of Rod. It's a message of Jesus Christ. And so we go with confidence knowing that because it's not my truth. It's the truth. What Christians proclaim is the message and truth of the one who's conquered sin and death and is ready to embrace all those who come to him by faith. So if you aren't following Jesus this morning, if you haven't received the forgiveness of sin by believing on Jesus as he talks about here, understand that he really died bearing the weight of your sin. But he was really raised by the Father to prove that he has victory over sin. He can deliver you from the eternal effects of it. And his disciples really do have the promise of eternal life in him. You have the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. By grace through faith. And so if if you're struggling to believe this morning, maybe like some of the disciples were I pray and hope that you'll take confidence in the fact that Jesus really did rise. This is a historical fact outside of Scripture that hundreds of people were witness to Jesus after he died, after he was brutally beaten, he rose again. Walking around with nail-scarred hands and feet, inviting his followers to come and see the truth. That is within him. And then to go and to preach that same truth. Believer, are you preaching that truth in your life and with your words? Let's pray. The message that we proclaim, Lord, is not our own. It is our own in the sense that you've given it to us as Christians to be ambassadors. You've called us to go with your word with the message of hope in the gospel of Jesus, but it's not ours in the sense that it's not about us. I don't make up my own truth to give, to display, and to to preach, and to share. Lord, these, these are truths from of old. Ancient texts from years and years prior that are still true today. And so, Lord, may we go understanding that this is not our own truth, believing that this is more than what we could ever offer on our own. This is life changing for people that need their lives changed. So convince us of this truth as you convinced your your people here that we might go in your power and under your authority to see sins forgiven in your name and your kingdom come here. Your will be done here. And so these are the things we pray for as your people. And Lord, if you're moving in hearts, maybe it's a heart that has been given to you but has, has been so concerned with what they're doing and their own stuff that they have forgotten their purpose. Lord, help them not to look silly but instead to be refocused now according to your message that you give your people. And may we take it in truth and in love And be bold as your early followers were. Lord, give us fervor and perseverance. In the workplace, in our homes, in all of these spheres, Lord, we pray that Jesus is glorified. And we pray it in his name. Amen.